Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you guys familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, author of Lord of the Rings. And there's a scene, I know it's a book, but I also saw the movies, but there's a, there's a scene from the, the Two Towers, which is the second part of that series, where Sam, who's a, a hobbit from the Shire, Sam goes to his friend Frodo Baggins, who's kind of the protagonist of the story. He goes to Frodo Baggins and he asks him a question. Now, both of these hobbits, they have encountered some amazing wonders. They have endured incredible dangers as they journeyed on their journey. And as they're traveling this treacherous road to mortar, Sam asks Frodo and says, I wonder what sort of journey we have fallen into. I wonder what kind of journey we have fallen into. What a profound question. You ever ask yourself that kind of question where you're looking around your life and you're looking at what's happening in your world? You look at what's happening in your own relationships and, and, and whatever's going on with you. You look what's happening in the world around you. You kind of are like, what kind of journey are we on? Maybe at times we feel like, man, I'm on fire for God and, and I've got this close relationship with God. And then you've got other times where you're like, man, God, are you even here? Like, I don't feel your presence. You look around and you're like, there are times when, when there's such blessing from God. And you're like, God, you're, you're amazing. I feel that blessing. And other times, you're struggling and suffering and there's difficulty. And we kind of come to the point where I wonder what kind of journey I'm on. Sometimes, when we're on that journey and asking that question, we look at the evidence around us. We look at what's going on and we come to the wrong conclusion about the journey that we're on. Like maybe you remember back when you were younger and maybe as a guy you're like, hey, I'm really interested in this girl and she's really nice to me. And you're like, man, she likes me. And then she's like, we're just friends. She puts you in the friend zone, right? You came to the wrong conclusion. This can happen in, in, in real life though, that we come to the wrong conclusion. We look around at the evidence and we make the wrong conclusion. For, so for me, I, I actually struggle with self-confidence. I know that might be a surprise to you. But I'm not the most naturally self-confident person. And so a number of years ago, someone came up to me, a friend of mine who was a pastor in town, and he said, Kevin, we want you to plant a church. And honestly, I looked at myself, and I'm like, I can't do that. I, I can't be a church planner. Like, I've never worked for a church. I'm young. I don't have enough education. Uh, I, I, I would always describe myself as a dreamer, where I love to dream, but sometimes I struggle with the discipline to follow through, to see those dreams come to fruition. And I'm like, dude, I don't have what it takes to be a church planner. I don't have the gifts or the skills to do that. That was my observation of all the evidence. And I went home and I told my wife, hey, I met with my friend and he asked us to plant a church. And she said, well, Kevin, why wouldn't God call you to do that? Kevin, you're passionate about people, you're passionate about diversity. You are dedicated. God has given you the gift of leadership. You might not have all that it takes to plant a church. But Kevin, I think God's been preparing you to do this. And here we are, Restoration Church. We are almost nine years old. We are almost nine years old. And I tell you what, this is a beautiful place. I love what God is doing right here at Restoration Church. But imagine if I would have settled on those wrong conclusions. Imagine what would be in this place if I believed that wrong conclusion that I wasn't capable, I wasn't gifted enough, I wasn't good enough to plant a church. 
failing to remember that God has purposes and plans that we can't grasp. See, the danger of this life is we go through life and sometimes we feel overwhelmed or insecure or we're struggling and we put a a period on a part of our life where we come to the wrong conclusions, failing to remember that God is still alive, that God is still active, and God is still at work. In fact, there was this painting I saw long ago and I couldn't find a picture of it. But there's this painting of uh, this burned-out mountain shack you can picture this. There's this burned-out mountain shack, and all that's left is just, just soot and, and ashes. And in that, pa- in that painting, there's, there's a man who, who's just in his, his work clothes. He's covered in soot as he's trying to sift through the ashes to figure out what's left. And next to him, there's a small child with tears in his eyes holding a soot-covered teddy bear. And the artist in the picture puts words at the bottom, bottom of the picture, bottom of the painting, that the father or the, the man is saying to the child. The man says, Hush, child, God isn't dead. I'll be honest, that's the kind of faith I want. That's the kind of faith that I want, that despite the circumstances around me, despite the difficulty I might find myself in, I have a confidence and a belief that God is still alive, that God is, is active and moving, that God is working things out for my good and his glory. The question then becomes, how do we get a faith like that? How do we have a faith like that where we can look at whatever circumstance we find ourselves in and still believe that God has a plan and a purpose and still believe that God is working things out to bring redemption? The past couple of weeks, we've been in a sermon series that we've called Easter People where we're looking at people who met the resurrected Jesus, and we saw how these people, when they met Jesus, after his resurrection, their lives were totally transformed. And that's because the power of the resurrection totally transforms people's lives. So today, the last week of this series, we're looking at Luke chapter 24. We read about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. These guys are struggling to come to grips with Jesus. This is the guy who was supposed to change the world. He was supposed to be their savior. And then he died. And they felt all hope is lost. Everything is over. But then as Dan read for us this morning, we saw that Jesus appears to them. He helps them come to grips with his death and resurrection being the very center of all of our faith, of all of what we believe, and shows them that the power of the resurrection gives us comfort and strength to live a life of faith, to live a life of hope. So our text starts out, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. The words will be behind me on the screen as well. And it says, that very day, on the day of the resurrection, two disciples were going to the village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking about the things that had happened. Now, in the original text, they weren't just talking about it. The disciples are arguing about it. They're trying to say, hey, this Savior that was going to change the world for us, he's died. And they're, they're arguing, trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Everything is lost. Verse 15 says, while they were walking and talking, Jesus drew near with them and started walking with them. But they could not recognize it was him. See, this is an interesting thing, and we saw this elsewhere in uh, the passages we've read the last couple of weeks, where for some reason, God 
closes their eyes, where they can't recognize that this is Jesus. And the question is, well, well, how come they couldn't recognize that this was Jesus? Well, obviously, The Walking Dead wasn't on Netflix yet, and so they're not used to dead men walking. Nobody expected that. But there's more to it than just that. I think that God had some things he wanted to teach them. I think God had some things that he wanted to teach them about trusting his promises. And so before he reveals that this is Jesus, he wants them to grasp these things so they could believe in the resurrected Savior. And so it says in verse 17 that Jesus asked them, what are you guys arguing about? And they stood still looking sad. Verse 18, one of the disciples named Cleopas says, are you the only person who doesn't know what's happened the past few days? He says, aren't you on social media? Aren't you on Twitter and Facebook? Don't you know what's happening? And Jesus says, well, what things are you talking about? And the disciples respond, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You see these disciples? They looked at all the evidence. They looked at all the evidence, and they had come to the wrong conclusion about life. They came to the completely wrong conclusion, and it left them devastated. It left them ready to quit. They're leaving Jerusalem to go back home to Emmaus because they're going to give up. We can't follow this Jesus anymore because he died. And so look what they say, verse 19. Jesus was a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and how the authorities delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but now it's been three days since he died. Do you notice in there how many times there was past tense? Verse 19, he was a prophet. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem us. Three times these disciples are writing in past tense. I mean, this is the disciples, they thought that Jesus, they thought Jesus was the one who had all the potential. They put all their hope in him, and then he died. And they're like, what does this mean? It's all over. Everything we committed our lives to is done. And they're like, all hope is lost. What are we supposed to do? In fact, they go a little bit further, verse 22. They tell Jesus that there were some women who were with the disciples, and they went to the tomb that Easter morning, and they could not find the body, but an angel told them he's alive. And some of our disciples, they went to the tomb, but they could not find the body. Now, the way this verse is implied is these disciples still don't believe the women were telling the truth. They still don't believe that Jesus could rise from the grave. And so they're thinking, hey, maybe these women, maybe they saw a vision, or maybe the body was stolen, but there's no way that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Now, you and I, we get the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. We know that Jesus rose from the grave. We know that Jesus is on this road walking with his disciples. But the disciples didn't know what we know. And they looked at all the evidence around them, and they came to the wrong conclusion. Their conclusion was that death had won, that hope was lost. Their conclusion that salvation and redemption was not going to be had because Jesus died. Listen, I love this. Because here's the disciples hurting, disappointed, fearful, afraid, whatever it happens to be. 
And Jesus meets them right where they are. Jesus comes in and starts walking with them. And notice, he's not talking. He's just walking and listening. Hey, tell me what's going on. He didn't come and lecture them. He didn't come and, 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 and start talking. He simply came and was present and was listening. In fact, when we have someone struggling in our life and we want to come and support them and encourage them, sometimes this is the simplest thing that we need to do. Not to lecture, not to tell people how to fix their problems, but simply just to be present and to listen more than we speak. So that's what Jesus does. He comes and he listens. He hears their sob story about how their Savior had died. And now Jesus is ready to change their perspective. He's going to teach these disciples that there's a wrong way and a right way to read Scripture. Look what he says in verse 25. Jesus finally speaks. And he said to them, You foolish ones, you are slow of heart. Are you hard to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into glory? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures, they interpreted from all scripture the things concerning him himself. Now we'd probably agree if you're a disciple of Jesus, you probably have some familiarity with the Bible. You probably have, have read it. You probably understand it. These disciples could never grasp the idea of the gospel because they had their own ideas of what God was supposed to do. They had their own ideas of what the Messiah was all about. I mean, this is a little background. Israel, they had suffered from, from years and years of oppression. Their latest oppressor was the Roman Empire. And so these disciples, when they heard Jesus is a Messiah, man, they thought this was the Messiah who's going to redeem Israel. They thought he was a political leader. He's going to bring political reform. He's going to free the nation of Israel from this oppression. He was, they were going to, this Messiah was going to return Israel to their former days where they had prosperity and power and they were a great nation. And then Jesus died. And their hopes were dashed. Because there's a wrong way for us to read Scripture. If we open up the Bible and think the Bible is about me, the Bible's about how me to have a good life, to make my life better, that's the wrong way for us to read Scripture. We can't approach Scripture with our own agenda, our own ideas of what God is and what He should do. Because the Bible is very simply, the Bible's not about you. The Bible is about Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross and His resurrection. And that's what, that's what Jesus tries to do for these disciples. He tries to teach them the right way to read and interpret Scripture. And he starts in the Old Testament, which is what they had. He starts and he shows them all the Scriptures and how it points to Jesus, how it points to the cross and it points to the resurrection. He could start it anywhere. Jesus could have pointed to Genesis chapter 3, the very first time that we hear a proclamation that God will defeat Satan. He could have gone to uh, Psalm 118, about the stone that the builders rejected that would become the cornerstone. Jesus could have gone to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who was despised and rejected, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. Yet by his wounds we are healed. Jesus goes and says, let me show you scripture and how it points to me. We have to, as we look at scripture, we have to learn to, to interpret scripture in light of who jesus is and what he's accomplished on the cross and when we can grasp this idea when we can grasp this idea 
that the gospel is the center of our faith, that is when we can have comfort and power because it comes from the resurrection of Jesus. That comfort and the power and that hope and that faith that we long for, it is found in the resurrection of Jesus. Look what happens in verse 28. It says, as they were drawing near, drawing near the village, Jesus acted like he was going to go a little further. Well, the disciples urged him to stay because it was late. It was too dark for them to continue. And so verse 30 says, Jesus comes, and at the table he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized it was Jesus the Savior. Notice, again, God had prevented them from recognizing it was Jesus. And then they sit down to the table, and it says Jesus broke the bread, and he blessed it. And when they saw his hands breaking the bread, that's when they recognized him. What do you think they saw that would make them realize this is who Jesus was? I imagine when he broke the bread, they saw his, his wounds in his hands. And all of a sudden, they recognized this is the Savior. Verse 31, suddenly Jesus was gone. But then verse 33, uh, they rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the other disciples and told them that Jesus had risen indeed. Again, here's your story. Verse 29, the disciples are a little bit afraid. They're like, Jesus, you can't continue on the road because there's no streetlights. It's dark, it's dangerous, you could get jumped, you can't travel at night. Jesus, you need to come and stay with us. But then after they find the resurrected Savior, after they recognize who Jesus is, after they've met the resurrected Savior, it's middle of the night, they don't care. We gotta go. We gotta travel in the dark. We gotta go back seven miles to Jerusalem and tell the disciples, man, Jesus is alive. You see this difference from, from fear to courage? And where does that courage come from? It comes from the resurrection, which is the power of God. That's where it comes from. When you believe in the resurrection and what Jesus has done for you, man, that gives you courage. It gives you, it gives you hope, gives you peace, gives you power, gives you comfort. Where you can keep pressing forward. You can keep moving forward even in the dark, even in the difficult. Man, I tell you, I love this story because I think the Emmaus disciples, they're not unlike us, right? At times, we filter life through our own agenda. We've got a way that we expect God to work. At times, we live our life as if we expect God to bend to what we think of him. At times, we can be focused on what we want, and if we're going to be honest, it ends up leaving us a little bit helpless, a little bit despondent, a little bit discouraged. And sometimes we get ready to give up just like these disciples did. But God in his great love for us, he draws near to us. He meets us where we are and points us to the, the truth of the resurrection. And when we grasp the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of what Jesus did on the cross for us and what he did in rising from the grave, that that is where comfort and power and hope are found in this life. In fact, the, the summary for this message today is the resurrection of Jesus is our core identity that gives us comfort and power and hope in this life. You want to be comforted? You want power, you want hope in this life. It is found in the resurrection of Jesus. So let me tell you, as we look at this passage, 
two things I want to apply to us today. Here's how we apply this. Number one, we've got to learn to read Scripture the right way. I mean, let's just be honest. Anybody ever think the Bible can be a little bit confusing? It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Like, like you've got the Bible, you've got these 66 books by, written by 40 different authors. They're written in, in multiple languages, written over a period of about, about 2,000 years by, by 40 different authors, three different continents. Like, you look at the Bible and you've got, like, poetry and you've got, like, like history and you've got, pro, like, like, how do you make sense of it all? How do you make sense of all of, of Scripture? Here's how. Is you've got to know the Bible is a single story showing us of our need for a Savior and showing us how Jesus is that Savior. His life and death and sacrifice is a thing that will make all things right. His life and death and sacrifice is what, fix, what fixes what has gone wrong in our world and in our life. In fact, there's a pastor uh, by the name of uh, Adrian Rogers, and this is what he said. He said, you cut the Bible anywhere, and it will bleed, because the blood of Jesus stains every page of Scripture. You see, when we open up the Bible, we're not primarily looking for ten ways to be a better husband. We're not looking for four ways to have a better marriage we're not looking for wisdom on, on how to be a better parent or, or wisdom to how to manage our money or, or wisdom on, on any sort of thing. We're not looking for commandments we have to follow. That's not what Scripture is for. It's not meant for us to learn all these things we have to do to make God happy with us, to make God love us. No, we have to look at the Bible as God saying, here's a problem of sin, right? Here's a problem of sin, and here's my plan to solve that problem. And it's constantly pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the sins of the world. That is what the Bible is all about. It's all about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to have, uh, doesn't want to make your life better. What I'm saying is Jesus didn't come to make your life better. He came to be your Savior. He came to save your soul. And you know what the good news is? The good news is, we live a little bit better, we have a better life when we, are, when we have a saved soul, right? Because there's the power of God inside us. When we, when we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have the power of God inside of us, and guess what? That flows out into our marriage, into our parenting, into our work, into our, our, how we manage our money, into our addictions. We, we have the power of God inside us that flows out into all these different areas, the Bible isn't meant to tell you just how to live a better life. It's meant to point you to Jesus so you can have your soul saved. This is where here at Restoration Church, one of the things that we describe ourselves is that we are a place that is biblically rooted where we want every one of us in here to be a Bible person. We want us to understand the Bible. And so as you are reading Scripture, as you're trying to understand the story of the Bible, here's three simple questions. I throw these down for you to help you grasp this idea of how to read the Bible in the right way. As you're reading, questions you should ask yourself. Number one, does this passage point me to Jesus? You read a passage, man, does this point me to Jesus? Number two, does this passage foreshadow or into anticipate Jesus in some way? Man, can I, can I see this as pointing us to Jesus on the cross? And you look at like all the Old Testament sacrifices, 
you got to sacrifice a lamb to pay for your sin. You see, that is foreshadowing or anticipating Jesus. And thirdly, how does Jesus and the gospel shape my understanding of this passage? If we're going to, to read Scripture, we've got to read Scripture the right way. And understand it's not about us. It's about us finding and knowing Jesus. In fact, one of the things we want to do is to help you facilitate that, to help you understand how Jesus is on every page of Scripture. We're starting a new series next week that we're calling The Story. And I'll tell you, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, this summer and fall, we're going to be in this series where we're looking from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. And we're going to look and find the thread of Jesus all the way through. Where we can see Jesus in the book of Genesis. I can't speak. We're going to look and see Jesus in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all the way through the Old Testament into Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, the gospel accounts, and then into all the way through Revelation when God comes to make all things new. We're going to see how this all connects into one meta-narrative all about Jesus. First thing we've got to do is we've got to learn to interpret Scripture the right way. And that is in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Second application this morning. Easter cannot just be a holiday that we celebrate. Easter has got to be our identity. That is why we call this series Easter People. We, we can't just have Easter be something we celebrate. It's got to be our identity. And I'll tell you what, Easter last week was my favorite Easter we have had. It was amazing. I loved everything about last week. I loved the donuts that we had. I loved the photo booth and seeing all these people take pictures in front of that. I loved, I loved the choir that was up here. I loved the baptisms. The preaching was okay. I mean, I loved all of it. And then I got to go home, and I tell you, there was more for me to love. I love the deviled eggs. They're amazing. I love the ham. I love watching my teenage kids running around trying to find Easter eggs in the backyard. I loved it. But you know, you know what most of us did on Monday? We took down all the Easter decorations and we put them in the Rubbermaid. And we took the baskets and we took the little green grass and we put it in the Rubbermaid and put the lid on it and we put that box next to the Christmas box in our garage with all the Christmas decorations, right? Because what happens is all right, Easter's done. We celebrated the holiday. What's next? Next is we had some warm weather. We need to go to get the yard ready. We've got Memorial Day coming up, and we've got summer. Like, like, like we put Easter away, ready for the next thing. What's next? Here's the problem. Easter is not just an event. Easter is not just a holiday. Easter is a beginning. Easter is an identity. Easter, as, as Christians, Easter is who we are. We are Easter people, and hallelujah is our song, right? The resurrection is not meant to be an event that we celebrate once a year. It's meant to be something that we live in every day. We, we preach in the power of the resurrection. We, we parent in the power of the resurrection. We deal with sin and grief and death and failure through the power of the resurrection, like, like, we are Easter people. That is who we are. That through the Holy Spirit, we have the power of the resurrection within us. 
We have the power of the resurrection with us, living in us and living through us. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 5.8 that we are more than conquerors. Why? Because Easter is not just a holiday. It is an identity. It is who we are. Come on, people. It is who we are. The question is, well, how do we become an Easter person? How does Easter become our identity? Number one is we have to surrender to it. See, most of us, when we look at our life, we are the center of our story. You tell your story, it's all about you. Here's who I am, here's my strengths, here's, my, here's, here's what I do. We are the center of our story. Life is all about me. And we approach Bible, we approach Scripture and say, God, what can you tell me to make me better? As Easter people, we have to surrender that identity about me and what I want and who I am to say life is not about me. It's about my Savior. Heaven and our salvation and our relationship with God it's not about anything that you've done. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. When we're going to be an Easter people, we have to surrender our identity and grasp onto his. Grasp onto what he's done for us. We have to believe and trust in what he's accomplished for us. And we have to choose. I'll be honest, I got to choose to come back again and again and again to that message. Because I'll tell you what, I'll come to church and feel really convicted about I'm an Easter person. And guess what tomorrow is going to happen? Someone's going to cut me off, and I'm like, you cut me off, you jerk. You deserve to get my, not my middle finger, I almost said that. You deserve to get me to honk at you. You deserve, you cut me off, you jerk. And i got to come back again and again and again to say, well, this life is not about me. It's about the Savior who died for me. And we choose to come back again and again and again because of what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. That we know because of Jesus, we know there is nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. And the good news is, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any less. Praise God for that. An Easter people simply has surrendered their identity and is believing and trusting and holding on to his. You know what happens when we believe that? You know what happens when we surrender that identity and said, I'm an Easter person is the hope of Jesus fuels our life. See, I, I've read the book. I've read the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. It begins with creation, and it ends with God's rule and reign forever. You know what that tells me? The Bible, God wins in the end. And so here we are. We're in between this creation phase and this ending phase. We're in this middle section. And because I've read the book, you know what that means? That if I'm in this middle section and I'm struggling, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and it sucks, and people are mean, and life is hard, guess what? I know how the story ends. And I'm not there yet. God is still alive. Jesus still has risen from the grave. He is still at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And so here we are waiting for this time to come. We know he's not done yet. He's still at work. 
So we can have hope in the here and now because he is still working things out for our good and his glory. And that is how we become that person that looks at the difficulty of life and we still have this faith and hope because we're an Easter people. We know that God is still at work. And I think about Adam and Alex coming up today. Think about what Henry's going to face in the next... 75 years. How many of you thought you'd see half the things you've seen in your life? Oftentimes we say things like, man, I, I, I'm scared for what my kids are going to have to face. I tell you what, Henry might have to face some hard things. He does not lose hope. Because I believe that tomb is still empty today. I believe Jesus is working things out for our good and for his glory. And I know in the very end, guess what? God wins. He will restore all things that have gone wrong. He will fix the things that are broken. And so I'll tell you what, Henry, little Henry, and you and me, we can have hope today. Because Jesus is alive and he's still at work. Let's pray.